Good morning. How is everyone? All right. Good to see you. Good to see you this morning. Hey, I want to encourage you. Hey, have I told you that I love you? I love our church. You know, honestly, I told the first service, you know, I've been thinking this morning, I thought, man, we have such a great church, don't we? Great people. You know, I don't know if, if you know, but I've been connected to some churches where it's like, man, you know, like they major on the minor. And it's awesome to be a part of a church where people love Jesus, they love the gospel, and we're together. And there's a sense of community, a sweetness uh, around the gospel. So uh, super excited about that. Um, pull out your message notes. We're going to be talking about the call to discipleship in Mark chapter 8. Now, you might be wondering, what happened to Moses? Are we going to get back to Moses? Well, 18 messages into that series, I decided, you know what, let's just take a break. I've been freestyling the last maybe uh, two months or so. So we're going to get back to Moses. I haven't forgot about it. We probably have another maybe 10, maybe 15 messages. Part two, we're going to be looking at the wandering in the wilderness. But today we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 34 to 38. So I want to encourage you to pull out your Bible or your message notes. If you don't have message notes or a Bible on you, that is okay. We're going to put everything on the screen for you, okay? Mark chapter 8, let's dig into it. You guys ready? And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for a soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Right before this story in Mark chapter 8, Jesus travels north with his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It is there where he asks his, his disciples this question, who do people say that I am? The disciples spouted off a few options. They kind of went through the list. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets of old. And then Jesus turned the question on them. He said, but who do you say that I am? Who do you think spoke first? Well, of course, it was the outspoken one. It was uh, the natural born leader. It was Peter. The leader of the 12 raises his voice and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, you are the Christ. In the Greek, it's Christos, which means Messiah, anointed one. Now, what do we know about Caesarea Philippi. It was up against this backdrop that, that Jesus asked his disciples this pointed question. Caesarea Philippi is located at the, the foot of Mount Hermon, known as Herod Philip's capital. Caesarea Philippi was an ungodly, evil, pagan area. It was given the nickname, the Gates of Hell. In Caesarea Philippi, there was a cave and a, and a large river of water, a, a huge spring that flowed out from the cave. Josephus, a Jewish historian, he said that it appeared to be bottomless. I have personally seen 
this uh, cave and this water, being in Caesarea Philippi. I've been there, seen it with my eyes. You can see inscriptions of false deities on, on the, the, the face of the mountain. The people believed that the ancient fertility gods went into this bottomless spring and disappeared down into the underworld. The Greeks believed that the cave was the entrance to the gates of Hades. Caesarea Philippi was not just an ungodly, evil, pagan area. It was very religious. People would come from all over the world to worship the god Pan. And it's against this backdrop that the disciples are brought to this area by Jesus. And they know it's Herod, Philip's capital. They maybe were uncomfortable because it's, it's a very dark pagan culture. Idolatry run amok. Herod, Philip, who beheaded John the Baptist, his palace was nearby. And it's, it's in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus challenges his disciples to be willing to confront the power of sin and death and to confront the gates of hell. Jesus looked at the band of disciples and he said, but who do you say that I am? Luke records Simon Peter saying, the Christ of God. You are the Christ, the Christos of God, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Matthew gives us a detail in the story, a wrinkle in the story that Mark doesn't give us. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus, he charged his disciples that he would build his church on Peter's confession. You know, the Catholic church, they, they point to Peter, right, as, as that, their like founding father. But Jesus said, listen, it's not on Peter, the person Peter. It's on the confession of Peter. It's on his confession, on this confession, Peter, that I am the rock. I am the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. I will build my church. Do you know that Christ is still building his church? He's still advancing the kingdom, the mission. What is the mission? The mission is the message. And we have to be obsessed about the message. We need to be obsessed with lost people. We have people that are lost all around us. God has dropped people in your world for you to invest in, for you to love them to Christ for you to be salt and light, the light of the world, so that when people look at you, they see joy, they, they see a, a, something different. You're different from them. God has dropped these people in your world so that they might come to know Christ. Jesus said, and on this rock, on this confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, one, one thing that's noticeable is gates are defensive. Gates are there to keep people out. Gates are not offensive. Satan and hell, based on Jesus, Satan and hell are on the defense. Followers of Jesus, we're called to take the gospel message to the gates of hell, that the message of grace and hope will prevail. I like to say as believers, we're faith spreaders. We spread faith. We should be spreading faith. We're love givers and we're hope dealers. Amen. As the church, we should be dealing out hope. We should be giving 
faith, we should be spreading faith in Christ. Now, who does the world say Jesus is? I mean, that's really the question. We know that Peter, he spoke up. He was the leader of the pack, and he said, Christ Jesus, you are the Messiah, the long-awaited one. We've been waiting for you. What does the world say about Jesus? You know, there's a long list. I'm not going to give you all the options, but people, well, they say, well, Jesus, well, he was just a cynic sage. He was a Palestinian revolutionary. He was a social prophet. A lot of people see Jesus as, well, he just met people's social needs. That's why he came, to, to, to be an example, right, to, to give and love on the poor. He was a mystic who preached cultural compassion. Some people said, no, he was a wandering holy man. He was a legend. He was a moral reformer. He was a fabrication of the early church. Some even go so far to say, well, Jesus was just, that's the key word, just a good man. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. He doesn't give us the good man option. It's either, it's all or nothing with him based on his claims. He's either a good man or he's the God man. Amen? That kind of rhymed there. He's either a good man or a God man. Amen? He had the, think about the claims that he made. He said, I have authority to forgive sins. No one came on the scene and made that claim. He claimed to be God in human flesh. Muhammad didn't claim to be God. Buddha didn't claim to be God. Joseph Smith didn't claim to be God. But Jesus did. He claimed that, that he alone could give eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He claimed to be the judge of all mankind. He assumed the right to receive worship. He claimed to be perfectly sinless. He claimed to be God in human flesh. He claimed to be the only way to God. So you come to Christ, and you have to, you have to. The, the, the big question is, who is Jesus? If he's a liar or a lunatic, he completely deceived his followers. He deceived them intentionally by lying, or he's a crazy nutcase Palestinian revolutionary. In his mind, he thought he was the Messiah, but he wasn't. But that doesn't square with Scripture. It doesn't match his life. It doesn't match his teaching. Look at the beauty of his life. Look at who he was. Look at how he, how he treated people. Look at, it. Look at the, the, the awe-inspiring teachings. I mean, people would, would flock to hear him because he spoke with such authority. He spoke with such authority. He spoke with such love and, and grace. He was so kind. And yet at times he was so direct and blunt with the religious leaders. He came with a message, a message about the kingdom of heaven. Peter was right. Peter was right when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Do you know who else was right about the person and work and identity of Jesus? The angels were. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Remember that big, amazing birth announcement? What about John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The demons even believed Christ. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Judas said on one occasion, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Pilate said, I find no fault in him. The centurion, the professional executioner, he was at the foot of the cross. 
I mean, this was his job. This is what he did for a living. This is how he earned money. He made sure people died. He stood there and he said, surely this man was the son of God. Thomas, who missed the first group encounter with Christ the following week, he's in the upper room. Jesus is passing through walls because of his spiritual glorified body. Jesus encounters the men. Thomas sees him. He, he sees him. He hears him. He touches him. And he says, my Lord and my God. People say, well, Jesus is not God. Well, that's clear as day to me. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. The apostle Paul, who was Saul, he ravaged the church. He persecuted the church. He threw people in prison. He beheaded people. He stood there, Acts 7, and, and he gave the green light, the call for Stephen to be martyred. Stoned to death. And, and, and Paul, as he's on his way to Damascus, he's, he's encountered by, by Christ, the living, risen Christ. And then later Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He said, everything that I was, everything that I had, it's rubbish, it's garbage, it means nothing, it amounts to nothing, but I found Christ, I have gained everything. Amen. When you find Christ, you gain everything. You don't lose. You gain. You gain eternal life. You gain fellowship with God. You gain intimacy with God. You gain forever, eternal, eternal life with him. Jesus turns to us today. Oh, we're not in Caesarea Philippi, the backdrop of the gates of Hades. But today he... He's whispering to your heart, who do you say that I am? It's your move. It's your decision. Are you going to believe that he is the Christ? See, here's the reality. If Jesus was and is the Messiah, then guess what? It's a game changer for us. It's a game changer for how we live our lives. So... This is what we're going to be talking about. I, I want us to go back. I, I just want to read two verses. Mark, Mark 8, 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to him, notice this, with his disciples. It's a broad audience. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Verse 34 implies that Jesus' words were public, not private. Did you notice that? And calling the crowd to him. I think the crowd that day was probably sprinkled, marked by disciples, maybe fringe followers. Seekers, critics, skeptics, people that wanted to maybe see another miracle, maybe be satisfied. We know at this point he had already fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, which, by the way, the 5,000, 4,000, just men, not counting women and children. So those miracles, he took a few pieces of bread, a few pieces of fish, and he broke it, and they passed out the food. And you're looking at anywhere from maybe... 10, 15, 20, 25,000 people total. The crowd that day was present, listening to him. And his challenge was for anyone 
who desired to follow him. This wasn't just some, you know, pep talk to his disciples, you know, halftime pep talk. No, he's calling. He makes, here's what I want you to see. He makes the call. Christ made the call, come after me. He gave an open invitation. He said, come after me, and if you come after me, it will cost you everything. So what will it cost you to follow Christ? It will cost you everything. You will have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Jesus gives us this this beautiful blueprint on what discipleship is all about. And and I want to talk about that for the next little bit. Here's point number one, if you're taking notes. Discipleship is about following hard after Jesus. That is the bedrock. That's the foundation. That's the starting block. You got to know Christ. You got to follow him. And that's a decision that starts with a commitment. There was a teenage girl that started dating the football star of the county high school team. And he had a habit of always arriving at the house as the girl's family sat down for dinner. What a coincidence, right? They would awkwardly invite him in for supper. And finally, the father said to his daughter, that boy is eating us out of house and home. You got to tell him to come after dinner. The next night, as they sat down at the table, the doorbell rang. The father said, I'll get it. When he opened the door, there stood the country boy. The angry father said, didn't my daughter tell you to come after dinner? The boy said, yes, sir. That's what I come after. You'll get it. Some of you will get it. There should be, some of you are like, well, what's so funny? There should be a desire to come after Christ. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're, you're going to come after Christ. You're going to turn to him. You're going to seek him. The Bible says, God, God tells us, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. What it means to be a, a, a disciple is to follow Christ, to be a learner of Christ. I want you to see the word there, anyone. Write that down or circle that. The key word here is Anyone. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he didn't place no caveat. He didn't say, if you're good enough, if you're, you know, if you're not too bad, you know, if you're, if you're kind of squeak clean, if you have it all together, then you can come to me. No, he says, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't, doesn't matter how much shame is in the game. Doesn't matter how dark the past is. Doesn't matter how many skeletons in the closet. You can come to me. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, what are you going after? Jesus said, come after me. Chase me. What are you going after? You know, the world, the world wants to suck you into what they're chasing. You know what I think the world chases? Three things. The the world chases sex. I mean, you can't watch, you can barely watch a show without any sort of sensuality or, or, or reference to a sexual moment. You know, it, like our American culture is like, is like Athens. Sports and sex, those two things dominate our world. People are living for sex, man. That, that consumes them. They're living for status. They're living for salary. Jesus said, come after me. 
come after me. So that should be the heartbeat of our lives, that we are going after Christ. He is real. He's lasting. He's permanent. He's eternal. You know, but some people have this mindset, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to let Christ come in as Savior, but I'm not going to let him come in as Lord. See, it's like, it's like treating Jesus in the gospel as a buffet. When you get to the buffet, you're ready to eat, but you take the plate that says Savior. Oh, I want the benefits of a Savior. I need a Savior. I need to be forgiven. I need my sins to be washed. I want to go to heaven when I die. But I'm not taking the plate that says Lord, because if I take that plate, that's, that might be hard to swallow. That might be hard. You know, I'm going to have to let go of some things. And Christ is saying, when I come in, I'm coming into your life not to take a room of your heart. I'm coming in. I'm moving in completely. I'm moving in. I'm taking over. Right? This is not just some small renovation. I'm changing everything. And so that's, that's the beauty of the gospel. God does that work if we surrender. If we let God come in, if we let him be the master, the, the, the savior of our lives. But so many times we want to pick and choose. Well, I want savior, but I don't want Lord. Jesus said, you don't get to choose. I'm both. I find it interesting in the Gospels that Jesus, on three different occasions, he tells his disciples to follow me. So like the first stage, he says, follow me. Well, in that season, he's proving that he's God. He's proving that he's Messiah by doing miracles. And so he's, he's, he's calling the disciples to become followers. And the focus is to know him. To know him. Let me say this. You can't follow him unless you know him. If you don't know him, you cannot follow him. You cannot. It's impossible. You can only follow someone if you know them. The second stage, Jesus said, follow me, and he sends them out in pairs. They start serving. The focus is serve. So it moves from knowing Jesus to serving Jesus. And then the third stage is he puts them with people, and then really he says, take up your cross, like become a sacrifice, let go of your agenda, focus on me. So the focus is is to be. So it goes from knowledge to serving to being, to being a disciple, a follower of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Let me make one other comment. I think sometimes people are stuck in the first stage. Okay, I know Jesus. That's great. But there's so much more to it. He's equipped you. He's given you spiritual gifts. And he's given you talents. And he wants you to use those things that he's given you for the edification of the body, to build up the body. We need you. We need your spiritual gift. We need your talents. We need your skill sets. So don't, don't be on the sidelines. Get into the game. Say, man, I want to serve somewhere. Great. We, we'll find a place for you. Whether it's leadership or serving or administration or giving or whatever, we'll find an area for you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer the old German theologian, he said it so well. When Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. See, back in the day, churches would measure, and I think to some degree we still do it today. Churches measure the health, the vibrancy of a, of a, of a congregation based on its seating capacity. How many butts are in the chairs? How many people showed up? Now, don't get me wrong. 
We count everything. So we're counting. We know who's in groups. We know who's serving, who's not serving. We count everything. We know what's going on. We know how many diapers are changed on Sunday morning every week. Okay, maybe not that far, but anyways. Jesus never said, attend me. He never said it. He said, follow me. Follow me. See, the church, we are enamored with bigger buildings and more people. And Listen, that's not always a sign of success. That's not always a sign of God doing something. I mean, Jeremiah labored for so many years. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he never saw one person come to faith in Yahweh. Was he a failure? Absolutely not. Jesus never said, attend me. He said, follow me. And what does that mean? It means to engage in the spiritual life with him. It means to be connected to the vine, to be connected to him, to bear fruit, to surrender. This is what Jesus is getting at. We're going we're gonna to talk about it. It's, it's about deny, take up your cross, and follow him. Here's point number two. Discipleship is a journey. The Christian life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. I love what Paul said in, in 2 Timothy 4, 7. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is the end of his life. He's, he's awaiting execution. He's in a dark dungeon prison cell. Nero is the emperor. And, and Paul, he, he's, he knows life is coming to an end. And he sees the Christian life as a fight. It's, you're doing battle against Satan, against your own flesh. And, and he says, man, the Christian life is a race. You've got to just keep running and keep running and keep running and not quit, not throw in the towel. And then he says, it comes down, you've got to keep the faith. You've got to persevere. Discipleship is a process. It does not happen overnight. There was a country farmer and his boy. They ventured to the big city for the first time, and they were amazed by almost everything they saw but especially by two shiny silver walls that could move apart and back together again. The boy asked his father, what is this, father? The father, never having seen an elevator, responded, son, I've never seen anything like this in my life. I don't know what it is. While the boy and his father were watching, wide-eyed, an old lady limping slightly with a cane, slowly walks up to the moving walls and presses a button. The walls opened, and the lady walks between them into a small room. The walls closed, and the boy and his father watched small circles of, of light with numbers above the wall light up. They continued to watch the circles light up in the reverse direction. The walls opened up again, and a beautiful 24-year-old woman stepped out. And the father said to the son, boy, go get your mama. That's all I got for you, folks. You know what? When it comes to the spiritual life, it is not immediate. We think, man, it, we're all about instant gratification. We want transformation now. Jesus is like, no, it's like a crock pot. It's going to take time. It's going to simmer. It's not zap, boom, bam, now you're like Jesus. It's not you get saved, God beams you to heaven. No, he's got a work for you to do. He's got a God for you to declare. He's got a life for you to live out. I, I remember the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Philippi. And, and, and Paul says, you know, um, I, I have this desire. The word is lust. I have this, this passionate 
strong desire to be with you, but I have this lust. I have this desire to be with Christ. I'm hard-pressed because I want to do ministry, but I want to be with Jesus. And that should be the same desire that we have. We, we want to be with the Lord, but we want to do ministry here. Romans eight twenty nine says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the goal, we know the context is salvation. We know that salvation, ultimately, the end game of salvation is our glorification. Anybody looking forward to that? Okay, there's one of you. That's good. We should be excited about this, man. We're going to have glorified spiritual bodies. Ageless bodies, right? I mean, can you imagine what that's going to be like? Well, we're going to be with Christ. The end game will be fully realized someday. We will be conformed into the likeness of Christ. As the Apostle John said, we will see him as he is. We will be like him. But until then, we're striving. Now, in the Wesleyan kind of tradition, they believe in like sinless perfection. As a believer, you can reach a state of perfection. Here's why I know that that's not true. Get married. Then you'll know your spouse is broken like you, right? Just get married. They're broken. You're broken. You're both broken together, right? And so, but it's about pursuing Christ and being shaped and formed in the image of Christ. That's the goal of the Christian walk. It's not more dad and knowledge. It's obedience. It's, it's knowing Christ. Uh, I was reading some research a while ago, and the research was done by a man by the name of Scott McKnight. He's a professor at a seminary. And every year, I thought this was so fascinating. Every year, he gives his incoming group of college students a test asking them questions about Jesus and personal questions about Jesus and what he would be like if he were alive today. And so the questions were like, is Jesus moody? Does Jesus get nervous? Is Jesus the life of the party or is he more of an introvert? What kind of music would Jesus like? How would Jesus dress? So 24 questions to, to kind of get their perception of who Jesus is. And then at the end of the year, he would then give the same set of questions, rephrased a little bit differently to see if their answers have changed. And here's what he's concluded. I thought this was fascinating. Here's his conclusion. The results are remarkably consistent. Everyone thinks Jesus is just like them. Introverts think Jesus is an introvert. Amen, introverts, right? Um, sanguines, you know, outgoing, life of the party type people, they think Jesus is super outgoing and super loud. People who are laid back, oh, Jesus, he's laid back. He's got to be laid back, right? People who are neat freaks tend to think Jesus is very much a neat freak. Amen there. They, they tend to see Jesus as themselves. And this is what oftentimes happens in the church that causes so much division. Over the years, people believe and think, and they want to make Jesus more like them. As opposed to making themselves more like Jesus. And see, I mean, we do it. I do it. You do it. We all do it. I mean, I... There's times where I'm like, yeah, surely Jesus had to have been just like that because that's how I am. 
we see sometimes Jesus, maybe, you know, we're not quite sure about certain things. You know, maybe some personality characteristics, we're not sure. But we, we see Christ through our own lens. Now, let me just say this. He had to have been a pretty cool dude because he was invited to a wedding, was he not? Right? He got an invitation. And then when he showed up, he turned water into wine. I mean, performed, performed the first miracle that launched his ministry. The children loved him. Children, when children love an adult, there's something special about that. When, when someone can connect with children, you know, a, a generation or two beneath them, like, that's a beautiful thing. And so we, we, we see, we see in, the, in, in the scriptures that the goal is to become like him, not make him like us. I think that's where sometimes divisions happen. You know, we, 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 could, be, we could take a hard line on something because, oh, that's, that's how I think Jesus would do. Well, well, if it's not clear in scripture, don't hold to such a hard line on that deal. Colossians 3.10 says, and, and, and have put on the new self, this new self, representing like this new creation, right? Uh, this new person. You've come to faith in Christ. The Spirit of God has come into your life. You're a new person. God moves in. And it says that this new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We're being renewed day by day. The great Italian sculptor, Benedetto Cellini, told of receiving a vast block of marble with one flaw. And because of this flaw in the marble, no artist would submit a design except one. In the public square of Florence, a fence was built around that piece of marble and, and a little shack was erected for the artist. And for two years, two years, the sculptor labored. After two years, the fence was torn down and the shack was taken away and all of Florence beheld the result and they marveled. Since then, Italy and all the world has marveled at Michelangelo's daydream. In that block of marble was a statue. Others didn't see it, but Michelangelo did. You see, in the lump of clay, which is you, God sees an image. I want you to see this. I want you to feel it. God sees an image in you. And he's going to work that image, the image of his son, into your life. That's what he wants. He wants you to be like Christ. And he's going to work on that marble. And it might take a lifetime. At the end of the lifetime, it's going to be a beautiful sculpture. It's going to be a beautiful portrait if we yield and we surrender to God. Here's point number three. Discipleship is about being with Jesus. It's about being with Jesus. You know, I want, I want to read something to you. I came across this long time ago, and it's really stuck with me. It's a little bit long, but I, just, I want you to just lock in with me because there's a, some really good nuggets here. The secret of a great discipleship ministry. The coach of the Olympic ice skating champion was asked why his student became a champion. He answered, through a thousand invisible mornings where she paid the price to be a champion, no one saw her. No one knew or cared if she was at the rink, but she kept just showing up. While her friends were still counting Z's, she was at the rink practicing, practicing, practicing. While her friends were relaxing in the summer, she was in the Colorado training program working and working. One morning, she was in the rink at 5 a.m. when a tornado hit. She was seriously injured. 
She battled back from that injury to practice and even uh, work even harder. It turns out that the secret of being a spiritual champion is much the same. Thousands of invisible mornings with Jesus. He set the example by showing up morning after morning to spend time with his father. Mark 3.14 explains that when he called the men he would build his life's work on, it says he appointed 12, and here was their job, that they might be with him. The first job of a disciple, be with Jesus. It must have worked when the men who helped crucify Jesus called Peter and John in for questioning. It says they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I think you can tell when someone has spent a lot of time with Jesus. There was something magnetic about them. There was an authority, confidence, power, and a caring. People become like the people that they hang out with. And when you hang out with Jesus, you become more and more like him. We can have a head full of Jesus and live ordinary, even hypocritical lives. We can ride a roller coaster faith with occasional highs that fit in with long stretches of, of a bland mediocrity. The reason we do not pay the price to be a champion, that price is to make our time with Christ non-negotiable. The anchor of our daily schedule, Christian meetings and events won't do it. Great Bible teaching and Christian fellowship, they won't do it either. There is no substitute for the love-driven discipline of spending time with Jesus himself. We meet with him in his book. The Bible is the love letter that enables us to be with him until we are really with him in heaven. A vibrant, powerful relationship with Jesus is rooted in those thousand invisible mornings with Jesus. No one will ever know if you show except Jesus. But if you do show up consistently, people will notice the difference and be strangely drawn to the Jesus in you. He'll show up tomorrow morning as he has every morning since you met him. Jesus. Acts 4.13 says, And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They saw Peter and John's boldness. What did they see? Confidence, courage, fearlessness. They were uneducated, common men, no formal education. I mean, these guys were a bunch of Joes from rural Galilee. But the people said, man, these guys, they have been with Jesus. Can that be said of us? Can that be said of us when it comes to to our oikos, our friends, our family, people that, that know Jesus, people that don't know Jesus, people that are, they know Jesus, but they've drifted away from God. Do you love them? Do you extend grace? Are you compassionate towards them? Where it's like, man, they just, they know something different about you. They know you're the real deal. In this passage that we're looking at in Acts chapter 8, there's three words I want to focus on. Here's the first one, three words that describe a disciple, a, a learner of Christ. Number one, self-denial, self-denial. Jesus says in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. The word deny is a strong term. Here's what it means. It means to have no association with or to disown something completely. The word deny, let him deny himself, it's the, it's the same word used for Peter's denial of Jesus. Strong. It, it's, it's the same word that Jesus uses about 
denying people in heaven if they deny him before men. The point that Jesus is making is if you desire to follow me, you have to be willing to disown and give up everything for my sake. You've got to not be selfish. You have to move away from your own agenda. Legendary NBA coach Pat Riley, he was asked, what prevents great teams from winning championships in his view? And he responded, he said, they are sabotaged by the disease of me. Selfish stars focus on themselves. They resent others getting any glory. They're frustrated even when the team is winning, if things aren't going their way. The most difficult thing for individuals to do when they become part of a team or anybody is to sacrifice. Riley says, it is much easier to be selfish. Christ is calling us to jettison our agenda, to give up like our agenda and our wants and our needs. And and this is the central challenge of the spiritual life. Christ demands that we would sacrifice our own agendas, that we would get our eyes off of ourselves and onto onto him. There's a natural tendency. It's it's about my needs and my wants. And and, and then Jesus kind of gets the leftovers. But a true disciple will say, I'm going to let go of my agenda, self-denial, no to self, and yes to Christ. Matthew 10, 37, I'm reminded of what Jesus said. He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said, if you love anyone or, or anything more than me, you're not worthy of me. Here's the next point, cross-bearing. Jesus goes on in verse 34, and, and he says, take up his cross and follow me. You have to understand, for the Jewish culture, like, the cross was an instrument of execution and death, and it wasn't some sentimental symbol. Like, for us today, the cross is a symbol of grace and love and hope. It's a display of God's love for humanity, but Jesus' audience, when he said, take up your cross and follow me, he was saying, take up the instrument of torture and shame and execution. The audience knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly the call that he was making. Someone said, someone gave an estimate. I don't know if it's true. It's the only time I read this, but they said, Possibly there were 30,000 Jews crucified during Jesus' lifetime. That's a lot. That's a whole lot of people. When Jesus used the cross to explain the cost of discipleship, the audience knew it. Here's the point he was making. And we live in such, we live in a free country. Praise God for that. Praise God for our military, the protection that we have, God's blessing upon our nation. But Jesus, so we don't understand it fully, but Jesus was saying, here's the point. You have to endure suffering, persecution, hardship, trials, and maybe even martyrdom. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Let go of your agenda and pursue me. Here's the third word, submission. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. And then the third word is follow me. Submission. The word follow is a 
present tense verb, it, it, it indicates continuous action. And Jesus was saying, I want you to follow me, and I don't want you to quit. I don't want you to give up. I want you to keep following me. Keep following me. It, it literally means to move behind someone. You know, sometimes I think some Christians, instead of moving behind Christ, they want to get in front of him. I mean, we know that the gospel, the Bible says that the gospel is offensive. It is offensive, right? You shouldn't be offensive, but the gospel is offensive. But some people want to get out in front of Christ almost in a way of like, you know, I, I need to kind of, I, I need, I need to kind of defend Christ. You know, I mean, you know, the Bible there's some really difficult, hard things in there. Jesus made some big claims, but I, you know, maybe I can try to soften the blow a little bit. No, Christ said, "Don't get ahead of me. Get behind me." He said, "Follow me." I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, we played follow the leader. Whoever the leader was, you had to follow suit. Everything they did, you did. You know. They jumped over a fence, you jumped over a fence, right? You ran around a car, they ran around a car, you ran around a car. Everything they did, you did. Christ is saying, let's play the game, follow the leader. I'm the leader, you're the follower. And the question is, are we going in the same direction as Christ? If we're following him, Jesus tells us, expect persecution. If the world hated me, the world's going to hate you. So why are we surprised that when we speak up with boldness and we, we, we state that we're a follower of Christ, why are we surprised that there's going to be rejection, that, that people are going to say things, maybe hurtful, you know, people are going to reject the gospel at times. Discipleship is a lifelong pursuit. We're so used to leadership but not followership. Jesus said, I want you to be a follower. I want you to follow me. You know, in verses 34 to 36, you know, you kind of see kind of see these truths packaged together. And, and in the Semitic language, the second and third sentences restate the first sentence. So in verse 34, the first sentence is deny, take up your cross, follow me. So we understand that. But now he's going to move to the second and third sentences, which restate what he just said. So Jesus goes on, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So here's a penetrating paradox. Jesus is saying, try to save your life and you'll lose it. Lose your life and you'll save it. Lose your life for for my sake, for the gospel's sake, and you'll save it. So the word life there can either mean life or, or, or soul. It could be read like this. For whoever would save his physical life will lose his spiritual life. But whoever loses his physical life for my sake and the gospels will save his spiritual life. Here's what Jesus is getting at. Reject selfishness. Reject the materialism of the world and find your identity in me. That's what he's saying. He's saying the world, they're finding their identity in the things of this world and materialism. This is why he goes on. And he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit? Nothing. For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? He can't give anything. What do you profit? What do you gain? If you have all the wealth, all the riches of the world, but you do not have Christ, here's the answer to that. You have nothing. You have nothing. But if you have Christ, you have everything. 
People are chasing the fleeting happiness instead of the eternal joy and the eternal riches of Christ. People are are trading what they can't see for what they can see. People are, people are, are, are content with the earthly rather than thinking about the eternal. It's mind-blowing to me that, that, that people are, are living life with no, sometimes no desire, no curiosity about life beyond the grave. They're content. They're, they're settled in. This is it. This is life. I'm going to make the, the best of it. And, 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 and Christ is saying, don't make that trade. Don't trade the eternal for the temporal. I mean, the temporal for the eternal. Jesus ultimately was saying, the world can't give you an identity. Only I can give you an identity. Build your life on me. Build your life on me. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. God, help us. God, help us to to live out a life of discipleship as believers, knowing that it's a walk, it's a journey. Help us to be spirit-led. Help us, us, Lord, to, to, to long for you, to long for intimacy with you. To spend those, those mornings or those evenings or those afternoons with you. Father, help us to see that the Christian life, it, it, this transformation, this growth happens over time. Lord, help us not to grow weary in doing good. Help us to be steadfast. Help us to be immovable. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you, Lord. God, I, I, Lord, I, I pray for those that maybe today... Maybe they've never answered the call. You you have given that invitation. If anyone would come after me. God, maybe someone here today has never come after you. They've never trusted you to be their savior and to make you Lord of their life. God, open their heart at this moment. May they turn to you by faith right now. May they just cry out to you, God, and just admit that they're a sinner, that they're broken, that they need your love and your grace. And that today would be the the start of of new faith, new faith in you. And they would believe that your son died for them and was buried and rose again. In the simplicity of, of, of their faith at this moment, that they would just cry out to you and say, God, forgive me. Today, I follow you. Today, I'm going to pursue you in my life for the rest of my life. God, I pray that you would speak to us. God, show us personally where we need to grow, where we need to grow in the area of discipleship, maybe where the test of discipleship really needs to happen in our life. Maybe there's something that we're clinging to. Maybe there's someone that we're holding on to that we need to let go of. We need to show that we love you more than we love that person or that thing. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to honor you, to choose you, to love you. And we pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.